Now we don't have any value. Hello. I hope neither of you had anything you wanted to say off record because I just hit record. I was gonna say like the worst slur. Yeah, I was gonna oh. I was gonna commit so many crimes. Yeah. yeah. It, well you can't Pride month is over, so I could I could be homophobic again now. It That's is right. first of July. None of Back us here to... have any queer leanings. There's no history of that. <laughs> There's no experience yeah. of that. <laughs> no. No, we are full of hate and bigotry. It it, it powers us. Much like it does the um Melnibonian race in Michael Moorcock's The Eternal Champion cycle. Damn, are we going straight in then? Going I, like... I think, I don't know, the segue was too, it was too good, no? Mm, I don't know. Wait, we can segue right back out though. That would be such wait, wait, a powerful wait. move. <laughs> did, did you say we segue straight in? Because no, we're all first, straight. Baby. I, yeah, I, I think you segue too hard. Like I'm, I'm I fully too hard. Yeah, I mean, you're f- I'm. You're close. I, I feel like the salt air of the the one of the stupidly named seas on my face now. <laughs> all, Look, they're all stupidly named. All the oh, yeah. names are named fucking badass. And it's <laughs> like it's like he closed his eyes and he pressed his forehead directly against the keyboard. Uh, my, my my favorite is the purple the purple towns or the purple cities or something. Mm-hmm. That, that's very stupid. Purple towns. I've got the um, <coughs> I've got the map in the front of my copy of the book open right now. It it looks like something I, I drew when I was about twelve. It's amazing. Yeah, I... The weeping waste, the silent land, the boiling sea, the dragon sea, the straits of chaos. We're back onto straits now. Um, and, and just yeah. re- regular <laughs> Il- Ilmar, Karlak, Gorhan, Rignarium. That one's a bit small. Can't really read it. Yeah. Just people on the <laughs> internet would have a hoot with the Straits of Chaos. That's that's something that in, in, that in like a, a better band. world, right? In, in a better world, yeah. the the uh, the queer community of of the internet would be wielding that one like a blade, like a wicked, perhaps a rune blade or some kind of vampire <laughs> blade. Uh, I think I think uh, <laughs> the, right. the Straits of Chaos is uh, Sisters of Mercy cover band. Um, <laughs> And they're kind of like the So we, I mean, I was going to say today we're going to talk about Michael Moorcock, but we're actually in, in a very Michael Moorcock fashion. We're going to do multiple episodes about Michael Moorcock in, in all sorts of different ways. Um, this one is going to be the most normal one, not because it's normal, but because the other ones are going to be even crazier. Um, yeah, we we'll, get to um, Jerry Cornelius. That's when it gets yeah. shagadelic, baby. Yeah, it gets exactly. <laughs> I I think I was fine not hearing your Austin Powers impression, <laughs> Gareth. I think I was okay. Does like, it make not... you horny, baby? Does it? Oh, my fucking! See, God, they're both that. British, so I didn't even think he was doing an impression. Oh, I just he was, was just being British. British. Yeah, that, that's just being British. That's just what they're like. <laughs> yeah. Like like you're always like chugging beers and firing your guns at, at the sky, right? Yeah. Britain and is I'm like gay America. Oppressing minorities and, and doing ethnic <laughs> cleansing. Uh, I and, like and, the and, idea and, of accusing Britain of being gay America. <laughs> and that's why, quote, their voices are like that. 
Yeah. I especially uh, like it because there's no correlation to queerness there. It just seems something like an insane uh, revolutionary obs- war obsessed homophobe would say. <laughs> <laughs> they, all of the all of the revolutionaries were uh, homophobes. So uh, I think <laughs> George gonna... Washington's famous quote: "I'm doing this for straight pride." <laughs> <laughs> uh, so. Well, Michael Moorcock is is British. Um, in fact, he was born in in London, which is a thing. And he also wrote uh, one of the most famous fantasy series, sword and sorcery specifically series of all time, um, the Eternal Champion Cycle. And specifically, the most famous and the most well read is the Elric of Melnibone series. There's like ten different books and. Dozens and dozens of short stories. Um, Wait, I said 10, but I meant like way more than that. Uh, Depends on how you count them. Um, And today we're going to be... um, There's uh, In my edition of the uh, Elric of Meliboni and other stories, uh, introduction by Alan Moore, there's scripts, half of the book is scripts for um, comic book versions of his stories. Which are, which are virtually unreadable because they don't render very well in written form at all. Um, yeah, there's about 200 pages uh, to be drawn by uh, Walt Simonson, who, you know, from like four and virtually all great Marvel comics. You know, there's like 200 pages of unreadable um, comic scripts in here that before you can actually get to the, the story where he, uh, the first ever Elric story. Which I, is like what I hope we're going to be talking about today, because that's what I wrote, read. <laughs> so th- this is a classic like Moorcock problem. I mean, you could see it as a problem, or you could see it as one of the longest running um, like meta literary influences. We're in. Um, so we're not going to be doing the whole Eternal Champion breakdown. I'm going to be doing a solo episode on that of like what to read and all of the different eternal champion uh, themes and ideas and so on. But we need to, to like maybe intro it really quickly. The idea is that there's a multiverse where eternally recurs the same story. There's a champion who is often a reluctant champion doomed to forever fight in the war between order and chaos sometimes it's law instead of order sometimes it's order um and this champion you know think about the classic doom champion of like arthurian myth which morcock obviously took a lot of uh, influence from um he's sad he's melancholy sometimes it's a she by the way um and we'll talk about morcock's politics i assume during this episode um and but but they're always uh lost reluctant suffering and so on um elric is perhaps the example par excellence he is um physically weak and constantly beset by his own uh, ambition and folly and uh, many different um enemies and yeah we're going to be doing the first uh story which is like the prologue right which is the first book that was released for elric in 1972 if i'm not mistaken that's right and kind of like the the reason it's a prologue is because elric was introduced over six novelettes in the 60s 
um, from 1961 to 1962. Um, and those are, well, the famous one is the Dreaming City, which is the first one. But then there's also uh, a series of other four novellas after it. And then in 72, Moorcock sat down and wrote the first proper novelization of the story, which kind of explains where Elric came from and, most importantly, how he came to possess uh, Stormbringer, his sword. One of the elements which recurs through all of the Eternal Champion stories is the Black Sword. The Black Sword has um, many different iterations and kind of stands for violence and war and the um, the fact that war is destructive to both sides, both to the victor or to the person who seeks it and also to um, his victims. Um, yeah, so that's kind of like the preface. I mean, again, it's very hard to talk about Moorcock because it's so vast. Like if you go to the extremely funny Wikipedia article, which is Michael Moorcock's bibliography, um, you'll be scrolling for a while. Um, he's released dozens and dozens and dozens of um, novels and books, and he's written a Doctor Who episode. Oh, a novel, sorry, not an episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, he, he shoehorned Jerry Cornelius into there. Um, he's worked on so comic so, books. So, fun fact, uh, I managed to meet him because of that novel, the Doctor Who novel. Oh. <laughs> very briefly and in a professional context uh, so i was doing an internship at random house who had the um like publishing rights for that particular novel because they do, did all the doctor who tie-ins and he happened to be in london on the day when we were going to send him a, a check in the mail for like i don't know like 50 pounds or whatever for the rights for his residuals for that novel and he said, oh, I'm, I'm, hap- I'm in the area, so I'll just pop in and get it. And I was like, oh, c- can I go downstairs and meet Michael Moorcock? Can I go downstairs and meet Michael Moorcock? <laughs> they were like, yeah, whatever, intern, go do it. Nerd, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, had, I had literally awesome. only read his uh, Jerry Cornelius books at that point because of um, it's it comes up a lot in The Invisibles, which was like a massive influence on me. I never read Elric yeah. until I, I read this. I, I knew of him. You should have told... You should have told him you'd only read Jerry Cornelius. You'd be like, I only read Jerry Cornelius. And not only that, I only read it because of a comic book that you also didn't write. So, you know, stick that feather in your cap, baby. Said, uh, Jerry Cornelius' famous catchphrase. It's shagadelic, baby. Oh, yeah. Like that. Please cease from doing uh, Austin Powers impressions. Um, so I, I just want to, before we... Yeah, Jerry Cornelius. Austin Powers. That's what I said. They're all the same. You're all British. Yeah, there's only one British person. Such an important fact about Michael Moorcock is that he was one of the primary writers and creators of The Land That Time Forgot, uh, a film in which uh, people get in a submarine and go to Dinosaur Town. Um, yeah. So tight. Uh, I mean, he also wrote the lyrics for Hawkwind. Uh, oh yeah i mean the name hawkwind uh, so, so this is one of the funniest things about mocock he wrote all these like lyrics for not, not just for hawkwind also for blue oyster cult um and spirits burning and a bunch of other classic bands but he he wrote them uh solely on the eternal champion like it was his yeah uh he he stuck it everywhere so the um track um three album tracks actually for blue oyster cult 
is Black Blade, which is the Black Sword from Elric, Veteran of the Psychic Wars, um, which is again Elric. Um, God damn, Veteran of the Psychic Wars, so fucking good. <clears throat> yeah, and of course that also re- recurs um, in Hawkwind's work. And then actually the last track, The Great Sun Jester, is about his friend who died of a drug overdose. Um, and then of course he wrote for Hawkwind, um, Warrior on the Edge of Time, The Chronicle of the Black Sword, and so on. He's appeared on stage with the band. Um, yeah, the, the 60s were uh, a different time where mm-hmm. sci-fi uh, authors and uh, psychedelic progressive rock bands moved in the same circles. Uh, but but I just I, that's kind of like a good segue into why we're even doing this um, episode and why like interest in Michael Moorcock I think has increased over the last few years. First of all, Michael Moorcock is like hugely influential. Um, he belongs to like a previous generation of writers that, that he enjoyed his heyday in the 60s and the 70s where writers could still be celebrities, right? Like on a culturally significant scale. I mean, there are writers who are celebrities now, but they're less of cultural icons, right? Um, you don't go to parties and expect to run into J.K. Rowling. Well, you might want to run into her to do some things to her, which I won't say on the podcast, but um, back then it was like, it was part of the scene, right? Um, he also influenced everyone. Like it would be pointless of me to start name dropping people, but every single person who works today in fantasy and sci-fi has been influenced by Moorcock. A lot of them have said it explicitly, like Michael John Harrison and Neil Gaiman and uh, more and more and more who were all um, influenced by him. He's won like numerous awards, Nebulas, Hugos, and uh, you name it. And I think most importantly, he is one of the best examples of how fantasy and science fiction can be explicitly political. Michael Moorcock has said many times that he is an anarchist, and it's really not that difficult to find the anarchy in his books, even the Elric stuff from the 70s, like even the early stuff are full of this grappling with um, politics and so on. So in our current political moment, let's say the last 10 years, there's been a major revisiting of a lot of fantasy from the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. Like we see the Book of the New Sun with its increased popularity recently um, and other such stories. And Moorcock is definitely um, a beneficiary of this renewed um, interest. And rightfully so. Like, my challenge on this episode is not to rant and like completely take over it because I am a huge, massive Michael Moorcock fan. Like I cannot accurately express how much I love the Eternal Champion books. Um, and I think for good reason, like they are phenomenal. So that's kind of like some of the background for why we're doing this um, episode. And now we can dive into the into the book itself. It's also worth noting that like if you're a fan <coughs> of science fiction or fantasy and this includes being into a lot of the music that we're into um michael moorcock is one of those absolutely inescapable names like he sits below the surface obviously of of names like um like tolkien or or asimov or things like that like there there is a definitive like golden crown of this world where like they've crossed over into like super hyperbolically mainstream recognition but basically if you scratch 
any amount below the surface of that. Um, Moorcock is similar to Gene Wolfe in that he's a name that is one of the fundamental backbones of, of that entire world. Like it, it's impossible. It's one of the things where uh, Eden had to pick his job off the floor numerous times when Gareth and I mentioned that we were quite well acquainted with the idea of Michael Moorcock, but had not actually (laughs) read anything beyond inexplicably both of us having read the Jerry Cornelius stuff for exactly the same reason. Um, It's one of those things where reading this was like being someone who really loves whales, the, the animal, not the country. And, seeing that weird little dog creature that um, whales evolved from. Because, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I woke up today and chose an incredible amount of violence because I didn't think this was very good as a story. I, I could see how hugely influential it was, but um, it was very clunky. The prose was bad. The pr- There was princesses in two different towers. Um, yeah, it, it just... It, I, I mean, his... Cornelius books are very like J.G. Ballard inspired. They're, they're really psychedelic and weird and prosy. And this is this is very um, like primitive. It, it feels like a, like a something that's been evolved from. And like the the things it evolved into are all the things I love. It was this is Warhammer. This is I mean. Elric is literally in, well, he's not literally in, but it, there's a character based on him in Dark Souls 3, the Prince Lothric. Um, it, it's in, like everything I love. But yeah, I, I, think, I think going back and seeing where it evolved from was, it, like it's, it's, it's just not very, very well written. I'm sorry. So would be that guy. You, don't, you, don't, you don't have to apologize because I'm going to do that classic like heavy metal uh, move which is it's good because it sucks that's um, right that's right i was about to say that it <laughs> fucking it bangs it's like every so, page okay. is wait, wait, full wait, wait, wait. of something wait. that shreds no let, let me do this let me do this so, so i think both okay so i agree with everything you said but it bangs and, and this is why the, in the <laughs> 60s and the 70s like the context in which heavy metal was also created was as an antithesis to the demand of a lot of um, mainstream establishment music that music be gentle, subtle, intricate, and high society, right? And heavy metal as not primarily, but in part like the voice of a lot of working class people, but also just people who are fed up with that kind of pretension is on purpose simplistic, loud, dirty, and like badly played. Uh, I mean, the examples are boundless. Like, um, I, my favorite one is that Sepultura didn't know how to play their instruments when they made their first album. Like, they they admitted this. Like, we did not know how to play our instruments. But also Black Sabbath and Metallica and a bunch of other people. Like, Iron Maiden started in a bar, right? Like, these were not high society people. This same kind of literature um, was written in that atmosphere, and it was very much of its time, you know, as part of this growing movement of pulp. Right? Like Michael Moorcock cannot be separated from, um, you know, Conan the Barbarian and the fucking, what's the Mars books? Uh, we spoke about them last time. And I keep Barsoom. Forgetting names. Barsoom. Sorry? Yeah, They're exactly. Oh, wasn't it? Princess of Mars, John Carter, love you. 
Yeah. Even if you're a, technically a Confederate soldier who fell asleep and just got a gas leak that sent you to Mars. We ignore that, yeah. So, like, that was the atmosphere <laughs> in which these books were written. And by the way, Mocock um, did some very interesting literary critique on the other kind of fantasy which was popular at the time, which is Tolkien. And Mocock's relationship with Tolkien is very fraught. And I actually have um, one of his essays um, open. This is available online. Just search for, I don't know why it's Epic called Poo. Epic Poo. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, because Mocock was a weirdo. Um, and like the stuff that he says here, oh, I, I lost my, my point now. Um, there's a part where he says, and I think it's, it's very interesting because he doesn't make like the easy, oh, Tolkien was a fascist, right? Um, but so I'll, I'll read this this paragraph. While there is an argument for the reaction in the reactionary nature of the books, they are certainly deeply conservative and strongly anti-urban, which is what leads some to associate them with a kind of Wagnerish Hitlerism. I don't think these books are fascist, but they clearly don't exactly argue with the 18th century enlightened Torism with which the English comfort themselves so frequently in these upsetting times. They don't ask any questions of white men in gray clothing who somehow have a handle on what's best for us. Um, and then other parts of the of the um, this article also talk about like the linguistic frill uh, frills, sorry, not th, but fr, um, and like the pastoral um, nature descriptions, and like it's very clear that what Moorcock was trying to create was the equivalent of one of the swords, right? Like nasty, brutish, uh, cutting to the point without any like um, embellishment and so on. Now, I, this is not to disagree with you. I think that when you read it today, it's, it's lacking. And like Moorcock can write way better than Elric. Uh, we're going to do a follow-up episode, Langdon and I, about Dancers at the End of Time, which is one of his weirdest books. And that is expertly written. So the question is like, you could say, oh, it's early in his career. He still didn't know how to write. But I think it's more interesting to think about it as a choice an aesthetic choice, like the choice of heavy metal, to be blunt. Now, some of the stuff in there doesn't, is not saved by that. Like, for someone who wants to ask difficult questions of white men, like the whole damsel in distress, uh, the princess must be saved plotline is, is pretty cringe. Um, but yeah, that's my two cents on, on the book being bad. It is bad, but that's, that's like good, actually. I read it and I couldn't help but think about the classics of our world, like the covers of uh, Sirith Ungal novels and the covers of uh, uh, what's that? What's that? What's that band? They all, all moved of them? to Finland recently or Norway and Smolder. Mm -hmm. Smolder. Yeah. Smolder. Thinking about yeah. the covers of Smolder albums and also, that's right, thinking about the cover of various doom metal albums. Just, ooh. Um, <laughs> this sounds like I'm making a subliterary comment, and I think technically I am. But one of the things that I think all of us love in the metal world, like not even just here, is the fact that the lines between the composition and the artwork containing it and the ancillary sort of like scenes surrounding it are deliberately blurred like it, it's meant to be like an all-encompassing kind of world or like a suit that you put on like if you if you put on a man of war record 
and just to listen to it, you're like, yeah, I normally listen to Dave Brubeck, and now I'm going to put on, you know, uh, <laughs> Warriors of the World, or like, uh, Hail to England. You're going to have a weird time. You're not really going to get why anyone likes the band, let alone why people who like Manowar love Manowar. Uh, meanwhile, if you drink enough beers and take your shirt off and stand in the yard, you're going to get it. And this... <laughs> This novel felt like drinking beers with my shirt off in the yard, where it's like he's too obsessed with the next really fucking dope thing that he's thought of to finish plot threads or to even write it well. There's also a certain magic of um of specifically pulp novels stemming back from the 1920s, but definitely goes up to about this era is when they end. And they have the colloquial name within uh, the speculative fiction uh, landscape as amphetamine novels. <laughs> amphetamine novels are known for two things. They're written insanely poorly because they're all jacked up on crank in order to publish a bajillion books a year. And two, they're fucking insane. Again, because of the being jacked up on crank. They can't think too good anymore. They, they have become, to quote our beautiful Lemmy, Motorheads, which is big fans of the band would know that that's actually just an old name for amphetamine abusers. Um, and shared members with Hawkwind. That's right. Was in Hawkwind, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah. Lemmy was in Hawkwind. And like, to my knowledge, one, Michael Moorcock definitely has enjoyed drugs in his time. That is abundantly clear. I'm not sure how much of these are actually like driven by amphetamine usage, but he definitely at least captures that vibe. And as much as I feel obligated to say, like, that level of abuse driven by publishers and very bad pay rates um, towards writers wound up ruining a lot of lives. Like, it, it's kind of accepted that Philip K. Dick likely had an underlying psychological disorder, but the years and years and years and years of amphetamine psychosis absolutely contributed to that massive breakdown that he had. Um so, and he's the biggest example, mostly because of how he broke through. But the reason why uh, that it's the case is so many wound up completely fucking losing their minds off of amphetamines, like, way before they ever, like, made something of the same level of worth as him. Um, so I don't mean to necessarily valorize that. That said, it produces an atmosphere in the book that is something that, I feel comfortable speaking for all of us here. Um, although I, you know, obviously correct me if I'm wrong in sort of the current landscape of speculative fiction, which takes a kind of at times cloyingly contained tone, like a very liberalized version of things like identity politics and um, progressive positions rather than more toothsome and complex, like socialist or Marxist derived ones. There's something raw and fucking thrilling about the amphetamine novel vibe where I'm like, Oh dog, this guy didn't think for two seconds about the sentence that he just put out. <laughs> he just went, you know, it'd be fucking sick if a sword could also be a vampire. And you know, it'd be even cooler if there was a second sword that is also a vampire. <laughs> and he has to fight a third regular vampire to get them. But you know who does this? That's right, a fourth vampire. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking sick. 
They're not vampires. They're dark elves. Okay. They're they, kind they're, of vamp. They are vampiric. The, the swords are. The, the uh, Elric and Yakum aren't. They're not vampires. You're not. You're telling me you don't get any vampire vibes from Elric. No, I guess he's it, describing it's, it's, a sickly, thin, pale dude who hates sunlight, and he he only loves to kill and cause chaos. And he also needs <laughs> he needs to drink drink potions to re- restore his strength. Yeah, and you're like, no, no vampire vibes there. That's not vampiric no, at all. No, because because <laughs> it's they're they're dark elves. They're the dark elf archetype from D and D and yeah. Warhammer's. Yeah, so Look, I'm not yeah, I'm not saying yeah, they, they didn't give birth to the drow. Wait. Like this man's. This man's yeah. sicko mode, Drist. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Drist is literally just Elric. That's uh, right. Elric if he was nice, which makes him interesting, but less interesting than Elric, who is Drist if he was fucked up. <laughs> El- Elric, is, Elric is pretty nice in this. I mean, he's... he's. I, I, I kind of came into this wanting him wanting it to be way more sicko mode than it, than it turned out to be. Like, yeah. I, I knew the, the, the outline, you know, evil demon, vampire sword... A monstrous emperor of a decadent kingdom, and I wanted it to be totally sicko mode. But I think the problem was it, it wasn't it wasn't crazy enough. He needed to do more amphetamines and be even weirder <laughs> than it turned out to be. So I have some great news for you. Mm-hmm. Um, it it keeps it goes way deep into amphetamines. Uh, I mean, so I think maybe that was a tactical. Now, it might have been like a tactical error on our side for to like choose this one to start. But on the other hand, this is like the starting point. Although the point that I'm going to make in my solo episode is that the whole idea is that this is a cycle, right? So you can enter it at any point. I My first Michael Moorcock Eternal Champion book was The Dancers at the End of Time, which is like Ooh. so tangentially related to everything else. Um, but you could literally read whichever one you want as the first one. And this is, yes, this is one of the more tame ones because... Um. Yeah, because it's supposed to, it's a prequel, right? He wrote it to mm. kind of set the stage. Um, if you go and read some of the Hawkmoon stuff, there's like giant pink flamingos, which knights use as mounts to to fight each other, and uh, animal shaped. By the way, Michael Moorcock also invented the Beastmen, <laughs> uh, animal shaped. Um, the, the British, by the way, are all Beastmen in the Hawkmoon stuff. They're all like. And they have the heads of beasts and they serve this fucked up queen. It's because uh, you're all fucking upright dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Me picking a fight with our entire British listenership. <laughs> An- anti-British action, Langdon. <laughs> America okay, got exactly one thing right, and that was losing in a war so hard to the British that they gave us up. <laughs> so I, I think to to kind of like move from what you said about the dark elf trope i think it's really interesting what or at least what not what michael moorcock did with it but what was done with it after him and what was taken from moorcock and what was left behind which is the the whole the whole point of the novel is is elric coming to terms with nietzschean morality right and that's kind of the sort of anarchist that moorcock was he was a nietzschean anarchist and basically the book describes three different positions right the first position which is the melnibonian position or the dark elf position in all of these other um settings is there is no morality there is only uh, it's hedonism right there's only personal enjoyment and we don't recognize good or evil um we only recognize our own uh, pleasure 
and in Murkokian fashion, heavy-handed fashion, Kimuril, or Simuril, or however you want to pronounce it, uh, Elric's um, love interest in the book, she literally says that. Like, what are you talking about? We don't care about Bolnians, we don't care about good and evil, we only care about, um, you know, what's, what's good for us. And then the third position on this kind of like Nietzschean spectrum, because the first position is a possible reading of Nietzsche, right? You're the master who gives a fuck about good and evil. Go and do whatever the fuck you want, like paint paintings and have sex and eat food and conquer other territories. Who gives a shit? And then on the other side of the spectrum, there's the other reading of Nietzsche, which is you need to enforce your moral code on everybody else, right? Like, you know what's right, and you have to tell everybody else what's right, and if they resist you, you have to kill them or subjugate them in order for them to do what you think is good, which is Yirkun, right? Uh, Elric's um, nemesis, villain in the book, where he is like a despot, and that's another reading of Nietzsche, right? The point of the master is that he knows what's good, and he knows it better than everybody else, so all the slaves need to shut the fuck up and do what the master tells them to do. And if they don't that's do it, the, then the master will... Yeah. That's the aristocratic radical position that we, I think me and Langdon talked about when we t- spoke about the on our Nietzsche episode. Yeah. Um, yep. One of the, the many... Nietzsche was a, a manifold character. He had a lot of different positions that he would take and that you can glean from him. This is because he deliberately didn't provide any real system of thought like he was extremely opposed to that hegelian structure of like a very systemic thought now what that does mean is that there's a bunch of dorkass niches that you gotta you gotta triage if you yeah. if you are interested in this man at all half of the job is going no shut up dude and then you read the next uh aphorism and you go yeah he back on it <laughs> yeah exactly like out of so, nowhere he'll be like and by the way we- women can never be masters and you're like man come on and he's like anyway i love i love music music is really nice and you go thank you <laughs> yeah and then the last position which of course according to moorcock and also all the people on this podcast and i think everybody who's listening who is familiar with nietzsche is a bit of both right like the whole point is that you need to have some sort of moral system like complete hedonism is not the answer and Nietzsche called well Nietzsche called negative nihilism right like nihilism which completely destroys everything but on the other hand when you do find your system of morality the point is that it's for you right like masters can coexist and they, because their moralistic system is not totalizing, they don't need all of the other masters to play along to the same rules. The point is that there are some rules which you set for yourself, and then you follow them to the end. And you're not concerned by challenges or um, people telling you to be meek or the laws of the land as they lie, but only about your own internal morality system, which you figure out for yourself. That is the true master state of mind, which does not seek to subjugate others because it recognizes that uh, the master's morality system is not a total one. Once you turn it into a total one, there's no difference between you and the Christian church, right? You're once again just enforcing randomly selected values as good and evil. And the whole book is called Beyond Good and Evil, 
right? Beyond, let's move beyond them. And that is, of course, the position of Elric. And um, more um, generally, the position of the eternal champion. He's being he... torn by... Go on. So what's interesting is that he, it, his kingdom has this um, first position, a Silmarils thing that, you know, drink and fuck, that's all we're going to do. Kind of like the Eldar in Warhammer, you know, before they yeah. all got eaten. Um, I think has, you Elric forgot the proper kind of... term, which is that they got swagged up. Did they, uh, uh, Slanesh, uh, she who first rizzed them so hard that they like, <laughs> yeah. collapse. I am the Drip King! <laughs> can, we, can we, like, collectively stop doing voices? I can love we, doing that, voices, though. You know how much I love voices. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 whenever I hear a, a a podcast with three males do, uh, who do voices. I instantly think of last podcast on the left, which is, if you've ever listened to it, it's like having your fingernails removed. Um, it's <laughs> the worst you've ever read, um, listened to. Uh, but anyway, but so, so um, yeah, Elric Eldal. is basically El- Elric when he starts off. Uh, this is basically is kind of becoming a liberal. He's he's read a bunch of. Um, philosophy from beyond uh his city state and it is kind of thinking about you know, right and wrong fairness john rawls that kind of can't that kind of thing he, he probably believes in categorical imperatives and so forth and i'm guessing that he becomes more of a traditional nietzschean when he goes on his journey at the end of the um at the end of the book he sets off to find himself and become a true emperor because he's he's see like the the problem is he's pretty weak through the whole book not just physically he has so many chances to kill his cousin yakun and stave off disaster he just doesn't take them um and i'm hoping that he that he learns sometimes you got to cut your cousin's head off and um parade around the streets and show everyone I think that's a really important lesson to learn for all of us. Listeners at home, if you have a cousin, I need you (laughs) to cut off their head and parade around with it. And you can credit (laughs) me for that, that I told you to cut their head off and, you know, (laughs) do Elric proud, kill your cousin by decapitating them. Because you may may be this multiverse's eternal champion. So, or alternatively, to... you might be stopping this universe as eternal champion, which is also yeah. kind of sick. So, I think to to maybe ease your your mind, that that's the exact point of like, how does the book end, right? Like, how does Elico Melibone end? Elric goes off um, for his like year abroad. I don't know. He backpacks across the <laughs> Young Kingdoms, and Simoril. I love this part where Simoril is like. You are stupid. Do not, don't do this. Like, if you, if you do this, and by the way, he instates Yirkun, his literal nemesis, as the emperor um, in an interim until he comes back. Simoril is like, <coughs> you are dumb. And when you come back, I will be dead and everything will be lost. Don't go. And Elric's like, it's fine. I I got this. Like he commits the obvious sin of hubris, right? So he's completely content because he thinks he has tamed Stolbringer. And the book ends with 
this very obvious foreshadowing again Mokok was not subtle where it's like but all this is wrong like uh, um, Mokok literally says I'm reading from uh, the end of the book and now Elric had told three lies the first concerned his cousin Yurkun aka I can trust him the second concerned the black sword that is I control it and it's under uh, under my uh, dominance and the third concerned Simoril which is I'll come back and you'll be here and upon these three lies was Elric's destiny to be built, for it is only about things which concern us most profoundly that we lie clearly and with profound conviction. Now, did he have to use profound twice? He didn't. <laughs> Does that sentence, is that he sentence that. still good? Yeah, he did that. He shouldn't have done that. Um, there should have been an editor as well going like, Michael, can you like choose a different word that's not profound? Um, but I, that's the whole point of the book, right? Because when we then, quote unquote, next meet Elric um, in some of the uh, earlier novellas um, like the Dreaming City or whichever one you want to call it Elric is like fucking cool he's horrible he (laughs) is like completely given up himself to Stormbringer he like kills people just for their like you know their power not their blood he's not a vampire as you insist Um, he is he's super he's whatever pale man yeah. who drinks their souls with an evil sword that that's a vampire that's a vampire i don't, yeah. I don't, I don't need to hear this bullshit i can read i got goddamn eyes you're you're a thrall eden it's what i'm hearing you're going thrall yeah. mode you're out here uh, and thrall killed i'm not i'm not I'm, you're the thrall man you're so thrall <laughs> you think you're the master <laughs> I, I'm, I'm the puppet master uh, anyway so like in the dreaming city he comes back to manly bone and is like i'm gonna fucking kill your coon like i'm gonna kill this guy i'm gonna gut him um and uh, like he burns the entire fucking city to the ground um nice. and, and also by the way spoilers he kills kimoril with stormbringer um, i was gonna ask because at the start of book one there's a little um there's a little thing that says uh the prologue before before he was called woman slayer so which yeah woman is slayer Kimrel? wow yeah he's like he kills her when so okay so so now we i, I don't want to do again like i said we're going to do more episodes and we're going to talk about like the the grander scheme of things but the whole like elric's path is in the whole eternal champion cycle in general is that like witty? Well, the line you think is witty when you're 16, which is fighting for peace is like fucking for virginity. Um, like when you try to be a warrior who fights for the end of war, you're doing the exact opposite of what you should be doing. And Elric is the most unleashed version of this because everything he does later in the books comes back to Elric of Melibone, where Morcock says he's doing this because he wants mainly born it to be this force of good and to modernize and um, to be like a better emperor and so on. And in the name of all that shit, he kills Simoril and he burns many and he kills hundreds of people. And he does all this awful shit because he just can't let go. Elric is the guy who's like, I can fix it. Just give me five more minutes. And then when you check back on him, He's uninstalled Windows or whatever, and now the computer doesn't work at all. But no, 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 I can fix this. I'm Googling it on my phone, and then like it keeps getting worse because he just won't recognize that he's done. And I, to tie that back to stuff that we said in the beginning, I think that's 
a really good and interesting take on the fantasy hero warrior trope. Like mm. Elric, it's not just that everything before after Morgok was influenced by him, but that he's also intertextualizing with the stuff that came before him. Like Elric is very clearly also like a middle finger to Aragorn. Right? Like and 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 uh um, that makes me Morgok. mad. I love yeah, you, Aragorn. <laughs> There's more co- well, you love Jesus, and Aragorn is Jesus, so like that's right. You, I am a Christian. You love him that's, by... that's my notable trait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when people when you go to parties and they're like, "This is Langdon." He is, they, they are Christian, right? That's what people say. They love Christ. <laughs> they love Christ, and they are also infected by the mold. Wait, what was that, Gareth? Oh no, sorry, go on. Okay, um, and they're also infected by the mold, and the mold is Christ, maybe. Maybe um, Christ yeah, is a like, type of fungus and an yeah. infection. Moving on. Moving on. So, so like <clears throat> this idea, and Mokok again when he writes about Tolkien, he he um, brings it up this pastoral fantasy that what we need is a good enough warrior, right, to rally the people. Yes, there's Frodo, and he has to do the ring stuff, and Tolkien, again, like he said, he's not a complete fascist, and there's more, like, liberal stuff in there, but at the end of the day, the return of the king, right? Like, Aragorn comes back, he's this awesome warrior, he discovers himself, he reforges the sword, the sword is completely fine and good and great, and it saves him and his light, and yeah. Uh, But Morcock is like, no, like the people who got us into this mess are Aragorn, like like these the warriors are the ones who put us in this situation, um, and then Elric and other Eternal Champion iterations are explorations of like how those contradictions work. What is this idea of fighting for peace? How does it work? What do people tell themselves when they do it, and what are the pitfalls of it? Yeah, even Game of Thrones. I especially like. <clears throat> oh, you go on. So Game of Thrones uh, attempts to do that. Uh, obviously, we don't know how the books end, but we can. if they're anything like the, the series, then the ending is, it, it goes for that kind of like hard one, one wisdom, moderation, very neoliberal um, ending where, you know, the, the people on the Iron Throne aren't the best people. Some of them are jerks. Some of them are even bad people. But, you know, they're, they're still working hard and they're, they're going to think things are going to be better than they were under uh, Cersei's rule. But, um, yeah, it, it doesn't... It, it actively mo- mocks the idea that um, things can get structurally better. There was, there was that whole bit in the last episode where uh, Sam Tarly suggests uh, democracy to them, and they were like, nope, well, should I just ask my horse who he wants for king? And, um, <laughs> yeah, the, it... It's um. It doesn't seem to have learned the lesson from um the Ulrich books then, and though I'm sure Jim yeah, for sure, has read these cover to cover many many times, for sure. Uh, but I think that's exactly what I was saying with with what I said about what's in Morcock that's been forgotten, right? Mm-hmm. In a lot of fantasy, which, well, if you want to be derogatory about, it, you could say apes, but if you don't want to be, you can say is inspired by some of it. Apes, apes, Morcock, and some of it is inspired by. That's what's kind of been forgotten. And that, by the way, is something that's very frustrating for me with metal, right? Like a lot of the bands that 
are inspired by Moorcock, and it's literally just everyone. I, I wrote an article about this for Heavy Bloggers Heavy, like charting Moorcock's influence, most famously Kirith Ungol, but then other bands. Some of them, like Kirith Ungol, uh, or so Sirith, yeah, I keep forgetting that it's Sirith, um, they did a pretty good job of capturing that stuff in their lyrics. Right? They're not like, oh, Elric, he's so awesome, he's such a good warrior, yeah, kill the bad guys. They're like, no, he's doomed, he's cursed, he will never succeed, he is like all of us. Um, this is like, we can't stop learning this lesson of trying to improve things by staying the same. But a lot of metal bands are like, Stormbringer is so cool, man. I wish I had like a big <laughs> sword, a big sword that killed all my enemies and was also they were talking to me. That's so fucking cool. And and dragons are awesome and all that shit. And they kind of completely missed the point of um, what these books are about. And a lot of this like sword and sorcery revival stuff that we're seeing today kind of misses the point. Which is interesting, by the way, because that's exactly what happened to Warhammer, right? Which was not born in the exact same time. Yeah, but not a lot later in the early 80s, where early Warhammer stuff, like fantasy, right, is way closer to Moorcock in style, in aesthetic, but also in politics. There's a lot of, like, radical emancipatory stuff in there, which slowly, as the game became more popular and the law became more popular, completely got sidetracked until we're at this point where people unironically think that God Emperor is a good thing. I'd like or that. like we have the, the or we have the Horus Heresy, which seems to be built around un, like working backwards from the really excellent position that early 40k had, which which captures a lot of the um So it's funny, it's like if we if we have to use the really fucking stupid term of grimdark fantasy, would, which is really stupid, I'm not even gonna get into why that's dumb, but Moorcock would almost certainly be its father. Um, specifically because of that notion of looking specifically at epic fantasy and wanting to ask the question that's been the inspiration for everything from Warhammer to, um, as uh, as Gareth pointed out, the thrust of A Song of Ice and Fire, as pitched to me and a bunch of other fantasy readers, I think Eden probably um, also remembers when the books were coming out and the show wasn't even a glimmer in anyone's eye. It would get pitched to people as like, so you know that the type of world that epic fantasy tends to valorize, like, oh, you know, the gleaming knight has to go protect the kingdom from the usurper and all that. What if it was portrayed a little bit more historically, uh, realistically, in that um, kingdoms are not exactly good. They are not de- uh, devoid of corruption. The corruption isn't from some random place. It's, it's a structural problem. And that defending these things is brutal and ugly. Um and that was sort of the whole pitch that was given to a lot of people. It's also why I quit reading them about halfway through the first book because I was like, "Yeah, I agree with this, and I get it." Oh, there's like <laughs> there's like three thousand more pages. No, I'm good. I'm good. Um, <laughs> but but Moorcock really was sort of the first one to provide that very strong push, at least in the West, of like, what if we have something that's hypercritical of this stuff and sort of portrays. Um, it's funny because he also presages this question that shows up in, I'm going to say it, guys, anime and comic books, um, specifically of <clears throat> the lay version is the question of power creep is after you've defeated, you know, X big bad. You can't fight a weaker thing after that. You have to fight a bigger thing. Um, and this is literalized with Stormbringer because Stormbringer like 
is regaining its strength through the story of uh, Elric and is deliberately seeking. You only find out much later that it's seeking a god that was so scared of it that he killed himself. But but uh, but but the blade is so evil that he's going to bring him back to life so he can kill him, which yeah. is so stupid and badass. <laughs> um, but we also have the secondary thing that's um it's become. Not so much the question within comic books as like a philosophical question that's become insanely boring the way that a lot of people handle it, but it's not a bad one, which is what if in your conflict, you wind up providing the ground for, for greater problems? Are you good or bad? So it's like, it's the Batman thing of like, would all these people be flocking to Gotham and doing insane, like literally insane crimes if Batman wasn't there? Like, are we hearing about this from, like, Kansas City? Or is it, like, all these, like, fucking psychos are like, I gotta fight Batman. So you could argue the presence of this figure has made life worse and not better, even though they're fighting on a certain side. And, I like, <clears throat> I knew that the first Elric thing was the story of his death. It was a couple short stories that got collected into a book called Stormbringer. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I think specifically to answer some of Gareth's stuff. Um, this one's at least well known in the fantasy world. Like I haven't read it, but I know a lot about it because everyone talks about it. Um, and this is specifically Elric going complete sicko mode and realizing literally at the most obvious fucking spoiler. So I don't, I don't really care if people hear this part. Um, by the end of it, he's accidentally resurrected numerous gods and blown up everything. And it's in the final moments of the final story that he realizes he's been manipulated by uh, by Stormbringer the whole time. And the minute that he does, Stormbringer's like, all right, we're good, and stabs him through the chest and kills him, and then flies away. <laughs> yeah. Also, it features things like the Tower of Balnesbit, which has two apostrophes in it. Um, this man is like the guy who helped bring about the like, what if we threw apostrophes into fantasy? Yeah. But when he did it, cannot stress enough, sicko. Fucking lit. We'll just ignore what apostrophes are supposed to do when they're in, in what stuff like that. They're, they can just be a decoration. He also... <laughs> uh, the premise of the opening story of Stormbringer is that Elric has fucked up and the literal dukes of hell have taken over the earth. <laughs> yeah. The whole hell and, and, and chaos stuff and, and all that stuff. Um, yeah. It, I like how, um, especially from what I know of that first book is that all of his thoughts about the eternal champion were so proto form that he had to like do, do the retronymic thing of like, how do I fit in the stuff that I've already written? Uh, but as a result, it, uh, it is completely schizoid. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I think this is a good place to stop. Um, again, this is not where we actually stop. Uh, Langdon and I are going to do an episode on the dancers at the end of time. And then I will record like a solo episode, which is a compendium to the eternal champion and where to read and why, and which parts are interesting in my eyes and which are not. Um, if you want to take one thing out of this episode is that the book is bad and that is good. I think that's like the <laughs> gem of, of wisdom contained therein. And now we cannot 
like we can't not play heavy metal right like we we have to do it um it's the only choice and luckily for us tennis released a new album in um april of this year what a great um, fucking band what a great tennis absolutely rule they are equal parts from uh brooklyn and newcastle england and those are like two good places to be in for heavy metal um and they're very much you know classic um on the the bands that are on the um stitch between progressive rock and old school uh heavy metal or heavy rock so think about uriah heap wishbone ash stuff like that like it's heavy but it's not it's Iron Maiden hasn't been released yet. It's all happening. It's all these like interim moments between rock and, and heavy metal. Um, and that's what they do. They released Voyage um, in April uh, of this year. Um, they, the album from 2019, In Another Time, is also absolutely phenomenal. So I encourage you to go back and listen to that. I'm just going to play Snow Tiger, which is the lead single, has a video, all that stuff. But this entire album is just uh, fantastic. Um, and that's it. Um, so thank you for listening. Tune in whenever we post the other uh, episodes about the Eternal Champion. And for now, enjoy Tanif's Snow Tiger. Bye-bye.